1: Hi, I'm Arthur Brooks. This is the last episode of The Arthur Brooks Show for this season, a season based on love, why we need it, and how to get it. If this is the first time you're listening, please check out some of the previous episodes in the season. We look at love in many dimensions, love of country, love of work, love of friendship, and why Americans are lonelier than ever before. We also talk about loving your enemies, The first episode was about romantic love and why it's so hard for some people to take risks for romance. Most of the season has looked at love in the context of loving people. But in this last episode, I want to talk about something different. I want to talk about divine love. You know, when it comes to love, most people say they know it when they feel it. And when they think about it, they think about it in the context of loving another person. Loving a spouse, loving a child, loving a friend. I get that. But I think a lot about love of something that's not another person. I think about love of God. And it feels different. It feels like a different thing. And I can't quite put my finger on it. That's why we're doing this episode. In no small part, because... I'm not sure I understand it very well. On this episode, we're going to talk to two different people, very different in their careers and very different in how they talk about the love of God. The first is a theologian. He's a Roman Catholic bishop, Bishop Robert Barron, the auxiliary bishop of Los Angeles. The second is a psychiatrist. Kurt Thompson is a psychiatrist in private practice in the Washington, D.C. area. He's the author of two books, The Anatomy of the Soul, and more recently, The Soul of Shame. His work focuses on what he calls interpersonal neurobiology and the connections between neuroscience and spiritual practice.
2: Welcome, Kurt. Thanks, Arthur. It's great to be here.
1: Glad you're on the show. We're talking about something that I still don't have figured out. Like The whole season is about love. Mm. And this one was something I was looking forward to because I wanted to really get to the bottom of the subject, which was the love of the divine. Mm. You know, I've heard my whole life that you should love God. And I talk to people all the time, Christians, Hindus, Muslims, and they talk about loving God. What does that mean?
2: <laughs> well, I, I think the, um, the easier answer is uh, I have no idea. Um, at at one level, in the sense that, um, uh, you know, as a psychiatrist, one of the things that we do in working with with patients, working with anyone, um, is that we have to ask the question, before we begin anything else, we have to ask the question, in what story do you think you're living? Um, Everybody lives as if we believe we're living in some story. We, as human beings, can't not do that. From the time we developed language as toddlers, one word, two word, three word sentences, we're always in the business of telling stories. And so when it comes to the question of what does it mean to love God, we immediately have all kinds of other questions that start to tumble into the conversation like, well, what God are we talking about and where did we learn about that? And what's the story that we are embedded in which we learned about that or came to have ideas about that. And so I think that anytime we're talking about notions that are this important, it's important also that we consider that we don't ever answer that question uh, as an individual. I answer that question in the context of a community in which I learn all kinds of things. Uh, A lot of those things are tacit things. They're not things that are explicitly named, but they're things that I come to implicitly understand. And so When I have to imagine, what does it mean for me to love God, I have all kinds of images and sensations and so forth that will come to my mind, but those things don't ever just uh, emerge outside of a context of the community in which I'm living. Let's talk to our listeners about what's going on inside their brains when they
1: feel love, and then we'll get back to love of the divine. So to begin with, how do you describe really concisely the field of interpersonal neurobiology? What does that
2: mean? interpersonal neurobiology with its kind of colloquium of different neuroscience disciplines developed this working definition of the mind that we can quote if we want, but it really gives us an awareness that the mind is an embodied and relational process. It's not just something that happens in my brain, and it's not just limited to my body my brain is part of where that emerges but i also have to sense things with the rest of my body but none of that is going to be of much effect if i don't have other brains with which i'm interacting and so it's a embodied and relational process that emerges it's an emergent process as we'd like to say the whole is larger than the sum of its parts so that my mind is more than just my body it happens because i have an interaction with you like we're having right now and that my mind can end up being more than just me and just you, but together. When you start to look at how that impacts communities, um, we see, and then when it comes to loving each other, it comes down to the question of um, how do these minds end up being integrated? That's a whole other conversation, but the notion of integration, how all these differentiated parts become linked together in the context of community, because community is necessary for this linkage to happen, we would say an integrated state is the state where love is most likely to emerge. Now, love for all intents and purposes uh, is just an abstract concept. As I tell people, like in some respects, there is no such thing as love. Now, I'm not, I'm, I'm not trying to be a philosopher here and say there's no such thing as love, but what I'm saying is, is that I only know what love is quite literally when I see it on your face. Uh, when patients come to see me, they come in Uh, living under the umbrella of the scientific plausibility structure, which means they come in and they want knowledge. They want to know things. And so they think that we're going to set up the scientific experiment. It's going to go something like um, they're going to give me information and I'm going to test that information and I'm going to give that information back to them. If I can know that I know that I know things, if I can know everything that there is to know, I don't need you. I don't need to be vulnerable. Love goes out the window, because love, by any standard, requires vulnerability. Hmm. It requires the necessity for me to need the other in order for me to actually flourish. So, well, let's back up here. This is not just
1: about love. This is actually you're just defined faith. I mean, faith is something that you believe without knowing. Without knowing by traditional standards of knowing. It's knowing without knowing facts based on evidence. Without knowing through the plausibility structure of science. So, therefore, you have just made a parallel between the nature
2: of love and faith per se. Now, we're getting closer to love of the divine, aren't we? Like all things, science can tell us how things work. It doesn't tell us why they work. It doesn't give us—it doesn't tell us about teleology. It doesn't tell us about purpose. It doesn't tell us about longing. Science can just tell us how those mechanics work. Interpersonal mm. neurobiology can tell us how things operate. It can tell us about the things that are involved in the operation. But it can't tell us about long-term purpose, about meaning, about mission, those kinds of things. And that's where we get back to this notion of if I um, uh, if I want to know something, I decide what the questions are. If I'm the scientist and I want to know things, I ask what the questions are. But if I'm going to be known by you, I actually don't get to ask the questions. You get to ask the questions. I don't get to decide what the limits of the hypothesis is that is going to be tested. If I grow up in a family or a story or a church or a society in which God is painted in certain ways, let's say that God is painted as a loving being, but I grew up in a church where people were actually really quite mean. It's going to be really difficult for my neural networks to kind of get that stuff all together and be okay. My distress is going to come because somehow I'm trying to put together these things that you're telling me that are mismatched. Mm. And so I'm going to have to come up with a story that explains this. And sometimes the story that I explained, I used to explain it is, oh, well, I'm just not going to pay attention to the things that were brutal. I'm going to hang on to one part of the story. Or I might say, like, no, that's, gosh, if that's who God is, right, this God who's loving but I've got parents who are brutal, I don't buy that God really exists anyway. So I get rid of the whole kit and caboodle. Mm. I'm going to come up with these stories as a way for me to cope with things until my coping strategies with all of that dissonance, with all of that distress is going to run out of gas because it eventually does. Then you show up in my office or you show up in a pastor's or a priest's office or you show up someplace where you're looking for help with this and you come to find out that the first step in getting help is making contact with another human being who can look in your face and say, gosh, everything you're telling me about your story makes a lot of sense, and I'm really sorry.
1: So if I say, Dr. Thompson,
2: um, how should I feel if I actually love God? I would say, what's going on such that you're asking the question? I would presume that like, you're worried that somehow you might not be feeling the right thing. Or that there are a hundred things that you might feel and then we would get into the question of emotion and the role that emotion plays and i would say i think arthur that you're more than emotion and i think that you're going to feel lots of things over the course today and i think that at the end of the day you're going to sense you're going to image you're going to feel you're going to think but who you are at your essence is not reducible to any one of those things In the world that I work in with people of faith and applying interpersonal neurobiology, you can't separate what your life with God is from your life with people. You can't separate it. We'd like to think that we could. I have all kinds of people that come into the office and say, you know, I trust God. It's just people that I don't trust. To which I will say, you know, uh, to the degree that you trust your friends is going to shed some light on just how much you trust God and Mm -hmm. vice versa. So let me push it a little bit further then.
1: So if I say, Dr. Thompson, I don't know what it means to love God. You're going to start asking me about my marriage and about my friends and a bunch of other things because you mm-hmm. want to know about whether or not I have
2: dysfunction in my ability to love. Right. And I'm also going to ask you, well, tell me, like, tell me who the God is that you think you don't love. And since the, the
1: love is manifested in behavior— particularly in behavior in which we serve each other, in other words, we, we show evidence of love, which is how we experience love, mm-hmm. then perhaps you're going to prescribe to me, if I want to love God more, to do exactly what the Hindus teach, and what the Muslims teach, and what the Christians teach, is to
2: to love God by serving my neighbor. That certainly is one way that we'll that we will include, right? And one of the ways that we talk about that in our in our work, that, that, that means serving my neighbor, is not just uh, identifying where does my neighbor have needs, where I can help my neighbor in that way, however that might show up, but also how do I serve my neighbor by actually being vulnerable with my neighbor? Hmm. One of the things that we're doing in our practice uh, that we find is having... Um, really helpful effect for people is the work that we do in groups. And we invite people to be in these groups of women and men that are working together. And uh, one of the things I tell members, prospective members, I say, like, I think the group will be helpful for you, but I also think that you will be helpful for the group. But you're not going to be most helpful for the group by coming in and offering insight and wisdom and recommendations for how people can fix their lives. That may happen. But the single most helpful way you're gonna be useful for the group is by virtue of your vulnerability, by virtue of you revealing to the group the parts of your life that are broken, the parts of your life where you're not very proud of what's going on, the parts of your life where you have deep longings that aren't being met in, other, in your marriage, with your parenting, with your work, so forth and so on. One of the things we talk about, uh, in our work is the role that shame plays as a neurophysiologic event and that it courses through us as individuals and it geometrically um, enlarges when we apply it. That's your new book, The Soul of Shame. Mm -hmm. Right. And one of the things that shame can't tolerate is um, what happens when it's brought into the light. It lives in isolation. It lives in private condemnation. Give me an example. Um, when people think about shame, it's it's not hard to think about major events that happen. Someone is publicly humiliated about something. Something they undergo a traumatic rape. They undergo some kind of event that is horrible to them. And we, it's not hard to identify. And we tell people, look, um, even though that's true, shame's largest payload comes in the form of daily sensations, images, thoughts, feelings of self-condemnation. I should have done this. I should have done that. I wasn't good enough at this. I wasn't good enough at that. Dozens and dozens of times every day coursing through our brain. We're doing it anyway, and it's happening so often like we don't even know it's happening. That has, that's a neurological payload that we have to manage and we do so non-consciously and it becomes like, as I write in the book, it becomes our own private shame attendant. that just keeps talking to us. It you know, it meets us in the bedroom. We wake up in the morning. and It follows us all day long. So you're anti-shame, to be clear. I want to be clear. I'm. I, I want to be clear and say that we uh, misunderstand shame's role, and we respond to it in ways 99% of the time that is actively unhelpful and disintegrating to the mind and to communities. Ah. So you're not against shame, you're against our reaction to shame. Right. The problem is that our reaction to shame 99% of the time is, I think, why we have the world we have in its disintegrated states. Right. And so when you're in a community of people in which you're telling the truth about these things, it doesn't give place a shame to hide. Ah. And if I'm going to tell you what it's like for me to be me in the parts of me that I hate the most, but I witness mercy coming from you. It necessarily changes neurobiologically for me what's going on in my brain. It means that I am no longer in a position of having to manage this story and its neurobiological correlate by myself. And that means that I now have energy that I didn't have 10 minutes ago that I can access, that I can go home and live differently because I'm not going home by myself, but I'm going home with Arthur in my head. And the more we practice this, the more we find that I'm able to do hard things, not because I've acquired a lot more information, not because I'm smarter, but because I'm more connected to other people. Courage is not just about me having something that nobody else has. Courage is about me having somebody else within me that enables me to do hard things that I otherwise wouldn't do on my own. So...
1: Let's go back to, again, how people can love the divine who want to, but they don't know. There's, it's not necessarily trauma. There's just, look, we have a lot of people who are listening to us who are, they're seekers. You know, they don't know what road they're on. They don't, they don't, they don't know what they believe, but it'd be great. It'd be great to feel like, uh, I love the divine. I love God and God loves me. What's the first step for these people?
2: Well, you know, we we talk an awful lot about in our in our work, for people of faith and people not of faith, we talk about the role of imagination. And that one of the things, one of the first things that shame does is that it truncates imagination. It shears off our ability to imagine things that we want to be possible, but we're afraid because if we trust what we think could be possible, failure and shame are waiting for us on the other side of that. And so we don't, Attempt it. We don't stick our foot out on that ice. And so I would say to our listeners, trust your imagination. But I would also say, trust the community of other people who really want to find the divine. In other words, you need people around you. You need people who are on the
1: same search and who have the same longing in their hearts. These are the people you need to surround yourself with. Now, this is very tangible advice. You don't have to know what you believe. You don't have to know what you're going to find. But you can't be all alone walking down that trail. You've got to find other people that you can love as friends who are looking for the divine that they're trying to love as well.
2: I think that's a helpful way to talk about it I, and, and I this is my own wondering about this I'm not convinced that anybody ever chooses to not follow God just because of intellect because I think when we start talking about intellect we're talking about a phenomenon that I think doesn't exist in the brain apart from emotion Now I plenty I, I have friends who who've left faith and who would say it's really about an intellectual enterprise that's all it's, it's boiled down to that. Um, All I can say to that is that my own personal work makes it really hard for me to be persuaded of that, mostly because um, I don't think that the brain necessarily, uh, we we talk about the brain and the central nervous system operating bottom to top and right to left, spinal cord, brain stem, limbic circuitry, right hemisphere, left hemisphere. That's how the brain tends to work. That's overly simplified, but it's still kind of how we do things. It's pretty close. So we say that human beings never make decisions because they make sense. We make sense of things that feel right. Hmm. And the question, of course, is going to be, who are going to be the people that I'm with, with whom I'm going to collectively enter into that activity? I'm making sense of stories that are happening to me. I'm making sense of the things that I think. But the sense that I'm making is not simply an intellectual mathematical thing. I mean, emotion is constantly fueling that. Those people, there are, there are people who are non-theists who, when they talk about attachment processes, they would say everything that we do in life is either a movement toward or away from relationship. So I have uh, I have a question. I want to know whether or not this—
1: is kind of a fair summary of how you see it about how do we love God. Your your explanation starts with the the supposition that love is not a feeling. Love is something that we create together. It's a a thing that people do that they create it together. And it it has feelings associated with it, but it's something that we have to create together. That's the essence of interpersonal neurobiology. Mm -hmm. The problem with the love of God, by which I don't mean that it's impossible, but the reason it's hard, it's harder than two people loving each other, is because I can't see God. I can see Kurt. I can see my wife, and therefore I can tangibly see the co-creation of love. Mm-hmm. But I can't see God, mm-hmm. so I have a harder time understanding and experiencing co-creation. So the objective is to experience co-creation of love, Mm -hmm. or I can't see it because Mm -hmm. it's not another person. I can't see it in the way that I can see you right now. Right. So it's a different kind of experience, not because it doesn't exist, but because I can't experience God in the same physical way that I can experience the presence of another person. And as such, I can't co-create
2: it in the same tangible, physical way. I'm going to push this just a little further and say... Uh, when we're growing up and we have these tangible experiences of love with our parents and then we go off to school, we co-create without them even though we can't see them. Mm. When I go out to school, I can't see my mom, I can't see my dad. And yet something has happened in my mind that has enabled them to take up permanence there. It's a phantasm, but it comes from the fact that the physical
1: reality of mom and dad have imprinted that phantasm on your brain. Harder with God. Absolutely. Because we have maybe some vestigial experience of it from something at some point, but Mm -hmm. but it it is less tangible. It is less tangible,
2: and it requires
1: greater maturity. Mm -hmm. But it's basically, we're talking about the same thing. We just can't experience God the way that we experience another person. Therefore, it's not impossible. It's just harder. To do the same thing. So you've given us two pieces of advice. However, if we want to have that experience without having the, you know, the easy route of having love with another person who's sitting across the table or at one time was sitting across the table, you've recommended two things. Number one is to to try to have that experience with other people.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: right. Because that's you got You're basically wiring spiritual batteries together. Mm-hmm there's more power where there's more people Mm -hmm. there's more insight where there's more people Mm -hmm. but there's also the model of love with our co-seekers so so that's advice piece of advice number don't go it alone piece of advice number two that you're giving us if we want to find this but it's hard to love god Mm -hmm. is to love god love the creations of god Mm -hmm. to Mm -hmm. love others and the way that we do that is to co-create love with other people and to, and to engage in acts of service toward the creations
2: of a loving God. That's part 2A. That's, that's that, <laughs> What's part 2B? Part 2B is that we have to allow ourselves to be loved uh. by others. The issue of vulnerability is absolutely crucial. It's not hard for us to come up with all kinds of acts of service. Uh The real question is, before whom will I allow my most vulnerable self to be received and seen and known? Because I can't give people what I don't have. Sooner or later, my acts of service are going to run out of gas if I'm not receiving from others what it is that I want to give.
1: Hmm. This is is super helpful. You haven't told me there's something wrong because I don't understand love of God. You said relax, go on the journey together, love others, and be loved, and let the rest fall in his place.
2: Right on. Kurt Thompson, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: We're going to take a quick break now, back in a minute with Bishop Robert Barron.
0: Vacations can be tricky.
1: Divine love, it's something I think a lot about. Not just because I love God, but because I think sometimes I have trouble loving God, or at least understanding my love of God. And I think there are barriers that keep a lot of us from loving God fully. The first barrier isn't about God at all. It's actually about people. You see, I'm a Roman Catholic, and I love my religion. I'm not in the market for a new faith at all. But I got to tell you, it's been pretty tough to be Catholic the last few decades. The church is a mess. It's scandal after scandal. And these are terrible scandals. Corruption, sex abuse, scandals involving children and the most vulnerable people. What it feels like to be Catholic today sometimes is probably what it feels like to be in a relationship that's being ruined by infidelity. Like in a marriage where one spouse is cheating a lot. It's not that there's no love. The problem is that the love is being obscured by the terrible behavior of one spouse betraying the other. It's a lack of trust. Now, the Catholic Church isn't the only religious institution knee-deep in scandal. You can find these scandals all over the world in different religions, and right here in the United States, you find other Christian denominations having the same problem. The Southern Baptist Church, just a few weeks ago, came out with a report saying that hundreds of people had been sexually abused by members of the clergy. So that's the first barrier, people. The second barrier is a little bit more conceptual, maybe a little bit more philosophical. Is divine love a different emotional experience than loving people? One of the people I admire the most who's written about both these barriers, the human barrier and the philosophical barrier, is Bishop Robert Barron. Bishop Barron is the Auxiliary Bishop of Los Angeles, one of the largest dioceses in the American Catholic Church. He's written courageously and openly and honestly about the sex scandals in the Catholic Church. He has an incredible ministry called Word on Fire that's brought millions of people greater knowledge and greater attention to the issues in the Catholic Church. It's bolstered their faith and given them the information that they seek. He has a huge social media following. On his YouTube channel he's addressed the sex scandals
3: head on. Hey everybody, this is Bishop Barron. I wanna speak to you again about this terrible crisis we're passing through in the church, this crisis of sexual abuse and the countenancing of it by by some uh, bishops. I know I spoke to you a couple days ago, but what's been striking me recently is the number of people who seem to be calling for um, the abandonment of the church. Like because of this crisis, it's time for us to leave the church. We simply had enough. Now, can I just say this? I totally understand people's feelings. I share them, the feelings of anger and frustration. I get it. I get it. But can I also suggest, I think this is precisely the wrong strategy at this moment in the church's life. Leaving is not what we ought to be doing. What we ought to be doing is fighting. That kind of courage
1: has been helpful to a lot of people, including me. But Bishop Barron has also been exceptionally helpful to me personally in my own faith journey to understand what it means to love God. Of these two barriers, the barrier of human scandal and the barrier of philosophically understanding the love of God, we're going to focus a lot more on the second on this episode. We're going to try to define it and make it easier to understand for people who are religious and for people who aren't religious. That's where we're going to start in our conversation with Bishop Barron. Bishop Barron is a scholar of St. Thomas Aquinas. So he started talking about the nature of divine love using the definition of love that St. Thomas used. Love is willing the good of the other.
3: We tend to think of love primarily in emotional terms. That's, that's sort of a modernism, and there's a lot of history behind that. Um, Aquinas, in his typically sort of pithy, embracing way, says to love is to will the good of the other. And and I would add what some contemporary people have, have done, just to clarify to will the good of the other as other. And what that does, see, is is it it holds off the temptation. Even if you say, oh, yeah, I get it. To love is to will the good of the other. But we sneak self-regard in almost unconsciously. <laughs> so I'm now going to will your good because deep down I'm convinced it will redound to my benefit. right? If I'm good to you, you'll be good to me. And so secretly I'm loving myself through you. But see, that's not true love. Most of us sinners do that trick I was describing. We'll be just or kind or, you know, um, loving, in quotes, but but truly just loving ourselves indirectly. To break out of the black hole of, of, of self-regard, that's love as Aquinas defines it. Hmm. And, you know, Aquinas,
1: in his infinite wisdom, was defining love, not just Christian love, not even just Religious love. He was talking about love that anybody can and should feel for any other person, right? To will the good of the other as other. This is not a strictly religious concept, right?
3: Well, I mean, I think he would see it as grounded finally in this very peculiar love that God is. So, I mean, Thomas will always see things in light of, of the relation to God. I think you can abstract as, as we just did, we abstract that definition and then apply it, you know, universally. But the root of it for Thomas would be in this strange dynamic that obtains within the life of God. Because what we say, this is now the Trinitarian belief of of the Christian churches, that in God, there's a play of lover, beloved, and love, right? which is the creator of all things. If you really wanna now get really metaphysical about it, that act of willing the good of the other as other is what makes the whole universe. Which is why, when we get in touch with it, we start going with the grain of the universe. Hmm. You know, it sounds a little bit um, 1960s there, but that's Thomas Aquinas. I mean, you're going with the deepest grain of reality when you will the good of the other. Yeah. Well, I mean,
1: look, Thomas Aquinas was the first hippie, and, and you and I are kind of hippies too, right? Yeah. So,
3: <laughs> in that sense, there's a lot to that, you know. Um, it's a mysticism, it's a mysticism of love.
1: Yeah, and so I have a puzzle for you on the basis of this. So to will the good of the other, I mean that's textually how Aquinas put it, and then contemporary theologians, Michael Novak added the as other on the very end, I think, for the first time. To will the good of the other suggests that you're you're looking out for the good that the other one needs. You're you're actually fulfilling the needs of the other. That's the essence of love. Now here's the problem, and here's here's the puzzle that I've got for you, Bishop Barron. How do you love God who needs nothing? If to will the good of the other is something that somebody else has, a nece- it fills a necessity, and God has no necessity. God, we, we exist, that Christians and, and people of other religions believe that God, that, that we exist by the grace of God from moment to moment. Mm-hmm. If God yeah. needs nothing, how can we will the good of God? And how is that love in itself?
3: What does it mean to love God? Because there there are two modes, Aquinas says, of the will. Like the will, it seeks the absent good, and it rests in the good that it possesses, right? So I speak of, for example, the, the father and son loving each other. Well, they don't have any needs. The father doesn't need anything. But they rest in the good of the other. In that sense, they will it. They they bask in the glory of the other. They look to the other and find joy in that experience. It's an ecstatic move, even though it's not a move based upon need, if that makes sense. See, but here below, we finite creatures, especially we fallen finite creatures, have extraordinary needs. And so you're right. Within that economy of exchange, something like, you know, willing what the other lacks and willing the good for them. But it's those two moves of the will, to seek the absent good and to rest in the good possessed. That's what it means when I say God is love. Or when I love God is I'm not like hoping that, oh, God gets something that he, he doesn't have. But it's, it's my resting in the glory and the good that God is that's willing his good. It sounds to me
1: like we're talking about a kind of a different sort of love. I mean, I, I, I love my wife, Esther. Um, I love my children. I love the church. I love my country. In a, in a weird stupid little way I love the Seattle Seahawks but it feels yeah. different it's, it's almost as if I have the wrong word to use the same word to say that I love God is that true
3: yeah yeah well they're all analogously used and and the love of God is the prime referent for the analogy I mean so that's that's what it really looks like the other ones are all participations to varying degrees in that great uh, resting. Like, you know, what's interesting when, when someone has died and we say, may he rest in peace, right? <laughs> the trouble with that is we always think of like of a hammock between two trees or something. And may you rest, may you have a nap, you know, for all eternity. But that requiescat, you know, in Latin, may he rest in peace. It doesn't mean that. It means this basking in the good now possessed. So the good that I've been seeking my whole life long now in heaven, when I have it, may you rest in peace. May you... You bask now, savor the way you'd savor a work of art, the way you'd savor a baseball game. You know, when you say you you love you love watching baseball, there's something of that. You're you're basking in the glory that is present to you. That's what the love of God is like in its fullness, you know. But then these different modalities are varying ways of participating in that fullness.
1: Hmm. There's a. Like- a lot of listeners who have not studied any theology and, and a lot of listeners who are not particularly religious, um, they might be thinking, I don't understand how to feel that. How, what does it mean to feel
3: love for God? Now, w- what I would say is this, to someone, let's say who was totally outside the religious sphere, and this all seems like a lot of opaque nonsense, is follow your will keep going. Don't settle for these very proximate goods. Keep going because what your will finally wants is goodness itself. And that's that's a dynamic in life that everybody feels. See, I would say to a, to a non-believer for whom all this is a lot of nonsense, don't settle for very limited, secularized, proximate accounts of the good, but keep your will opening up. And see, it's, it's awakening love in deeper and deeper ways. Follow that and you'll come to to the religious dimension of life. Perform the simplest act of love. Forget about your own happiness, forget about good feelings, forget about metaphysics for the minute, but perform an act of love and you're on the path that will lead to God.
1: So here's a question. Here's a, a, a shocking trend in American life of the number of people who say that they have no faith. Um, I mean, it's something that we haven't seen, at least since we've been keeping sociological data on religious activity in the United States. It's tripled since 1990 from 8% of the population to Mm -hmm. 22% of the population. I've heard you speak really eloquently about this, and you're worried about it. And and, and a lot of people listening to us, too, are worried about it. But a lot of people listening to us are nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And some of them used to be religious, and I bet some of them would say that they've fallen out of love with God. Can you address that?
3: Yeah, I, I don't know if I'd put it there. I think a lot of them have been have been um, beguiled by a secularism that's born to some degree of a very poor evangelization strategy on the part of the churches. What I mean is we've gotten really bad at telling our story and explaining why religion is so central to human flourishing. And so we've gotten very bad at it. We've also been, been affected by scandals. And into the breaches come uh, a very flattened view of life called secularism. The goods of this world that I can see and measure and understand scientifically, that's it. That is not just an intellectual issue. That's a soul issue. And and a lot of the suffering that we see, especially in young people, and these, the depression and the suicidal stuff and all of that is coming from a loss of the transcendent, which does violence to the human spirit. So it, it's a, it's, I would argue the crisis of our time it, is this crisis of, of, a, of an aggressive secularism that's shutting down the human spirit. It's shutting down the mind, shutting down the will, forcing us to be satisfied with very low level um, attainments. What I see, even in like, in maybe especially in the angry people that engage me on social media about religion, it's the, it's the crying out of the human heart it's this voice coming from these deep caverns, see, that that wants God, it wants the love of God, but it's getting blocked. And there's all kinds of reasons for that. And I look at the new atheists and all of that business. 9-11 had something to do with this. You know, the, there's religion again, violent and irrational, and this has shaped a lot of young people. Hmm. Um, so I think that's, that's the central need of
1: our time. I have one more question for you, which is, you know, yeah. love of God leads inevitably to fanaticism and violent acts and exclusion and discrimination and even to hatred. What say you to that?
3: I'd say that's true, <laughs> that it often does. Uh, you know, again, Paul Tillich said, religion is ultimate concern, right? What, what concerns me ultimately is my religion. So it's always associated with intense devotion, feeling, zeal, and that's why it's dangerous, because if, if you're deeply unconverted, you're a sinner, and now your ultimate concern has been awakened, that can take these weird forms. And that's where you get all the fanaticism and violence. My, my Christian answer ultimately is stare really hard at the cross of Jesus, because that's where it all now comes together. What's my ultimate concern? Well, it, it's him. I preach one thing in Christ to him and crucified, Paul says. What's Ipsum Essay look like? It looks like like him. It looks like this crucified criminal who's saying, I, I, I love you and forgive you to his enemies. Uh, what's the deepest meaning of life? What's the mystery we're all seeking? What is my will hungry for? It's him. See? So I mean, look at him, and I think you're going to find fanaticism and violence and all that stuff quelled. Um, Everything we've been talking about, and I'm speaking as a as a Christian, everything we've been talking about leads to that revelation, right? That's what led the Christians to say that God is love. What were they looking at? They were looking at Jesus crucified, you know. So I think that's the answer to the the very present reality of of uh, fanaticism. Look at Jesus,
1: hmm. Bishop Barron. We've been talking about what it means to love God and to a certain extent, even how to love God, how do I know if God loves
3: me? Because you exist. Uh, Aquinas says that you know, to love is the will the good of the other, right? M- my existence is non-self-explanatory. Go back to that. It's contingent, right? The existence of this, everything in front of me right now in this room, it's, it's, it's non-self-explanatory. It's come from another. Where does it ultimately come from? It's come from the one who gives being. And that's one way Aquinas defines God, is is the one who gives essay, gives to be, right? So my very existence is a sign of the divine love because he willed my good. In fact, moment by moment, every time I breathe, every moment I exist, my good is being willed ultimately by God. And so that's how I experience the divine love. That's why, again, Meister Eckhart said, when you pray, don't so much climb the holy mountain, but but sit and sink. And what he meant was sink into the, the reality of who you are and you're going to find the divine love. Merton said to pray is to find the place in you where you are here and now being created by God. It's really cool because that means you found the place where you're being loved, right? You're being created moment by moment. So you're, you're loved by definition. He's willing a good, your existence, uh, so I would do that. I would sit and sink. I'd find the place in you where you're here and now being created by God, and you'll you'll experience the divine love.
1: What a privilege it is to talk to a friend uh, that I've known for some years and somebody who shares my values and who loves the same things that I do. You know, Aristotle said that the perfect friendship is one in which love of something bigger than either friend sort of refracts off the friendship. And so you you share these things. And, and that's what this last hour has been uh, for me, is to be able to talk about that with my friend and to talk about something that I care about. Thank you for that, Bishop Barron.
3: Well, God bless you. It was my joy to be with you.
1: <laughs> of all the episodes of The Arthur Brooks Show this season about love, I think that this one, in a way, is the most philosophical and the least definitive. It's pretty hard to understand, but here's what I've been thinking about all the way through this episode. I've come a pretty long way on my journey, and the journey is really what the love of the divine is all about, isn't it? It's not about the destination of achieving it definitively once and for all in your life. It's an adventure. It's a great adventure, and it's the adventure I get to keep looking forward to for the rest of my life. You know what? I love that. Our team at AEI is CeCe Gallagher and Nathan Thompson. At Vox Media, Golda Arthur is senior producer, Jarrett Floyd is our engineer, and Nishaf Kirwa is executive producer of audio. Our theme music is composed by Gautam Shrikashen. A special thanks this season to Zach Kahn, Senior Manager of Podcast Marketing at Vox Media. You can get in touch with the show via email, arthurbrooksshow at voxmedia.com. And on Twitter, I'm at Arthur Brooks. Please rate and review the podcast. And if you like the season, tell a friend and get them to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thanks for listening.